0: I thought he was gonna pray or something. I would have been ready. Good afternoon, church. Good afternoon. Am I am I on? Did it work? Did I do it? What a joy to be together, man! Easter weekend was pretty good, huh? What a stinking joy! It was just just so much fun to be together. I I feel like I cheated because I I got to be at all three gatherings. And so I got to see all of you. I got to see people I hadn't seen in like a year. It was so, so, I don't know, just so joyful. I'm so glad to be together. Glad you guys came back. It was a gorgeous day. I'm sure you had to pull yourselves out of your yards uh, to be here, but we're glad you're here. And even if you're joining us online or watching later, we're glad you are worshiping with us. We're doing something new today. I'm excited for it. But before we get to that, I do have an announcement I need to share really quick. And I told Craig I never do announcements in the sermon, so everyone's going to think it's really ominous. Um, And it is. I I quit. I'm just kidding. Uh, No, all I need to tell you guys about is uh, on Saturday, April 27th, we have an opportunity uh, to go do a mission day and partner with a ministry we really care about here in St. Louis. Uh, In North City, there's a ministry called Mission St. Louis. And we've done stuff with them in the past. Our students have done a retreat with them and spent the night there. They are a wonderful ministry. I am stoked about them. If any of you remember the days when we were going up and hanging out with churches in the streets and serving the homeless, Um, very, very similar ministry. But I'll tell you the key difference. And this is the reason I'm so excited for our church uh, to to partner with Mission St. Louis. And that's this churches on the streets is a great ministry that does charity for the homeless in our city. But the, the siren cry of Mission St. Louis is empowerment, not charity. And so they talk about what does it look like to be so deeply involved in the life of the community in North City that, that the, 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 the people who live there, the neighborhoods who live there, the, the folk who are there are empowered to, to raise up and see their community change. Uh, through the power of the gospel. It's, it's insane some of the stuff Mission St. Louis gets to do. They run... Um, and after school program, they run a mentorship program for uh, young folk who've just come out of prison. They run um, several different ministries. The one that we're gonna get to partner with is that they run a community garden where they sell uh, fresh produce in an area uh, of the city where people literally don't have access to a grocery store easily. Uh, So they grow produce in their own uh, garden and then sell it at a rate that's actually affordable for people in the neighborhood, it's really cool. We've got invited to come help prep the garden for this summer. So come wearing your your shorts, your work clothes, ready to get muddy. We're going to rake and dig and plant and garden to the glory of God. Uh, That'll be April 27th. Saturday we will be there from nine to probably three or so. You can leave early if you need to. 24th. 24th, What did I say? Oh, 24th. 24th. The sat two Saturdays from now. Um, you, you'll be able, Craig's going to send out a sign-up sheet tomorrow. We do need you guys to sign up for that because we are, as a church, covering the majority of the cost for this. We ask that you guys would bring five bucks to help cover the cost of what we're doing, um, but we're, we're going to cover the majority of it. So we do need um, a firm count of who's coming. Um, you sign up for that. Craig will send out an email. And, and you can either meet us there that day or you can drive there together. We'll have some people meet up at my house and drive down together. But guys, it's going to be a blast. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten to be involved in one of these just mission days before, either back when we ran the community garden and helped and partnered um, up in the east side or when we've gotten to do stuff with churches in the streets, but there's just something, there's just something about getting out with your church and getting your hands dirty for something that you know is going to glorify God and make your community a better place. It's just, it's joyful, it's life-giving, it's unifying. I would love for you guys to be a part of that. Please, if, if you can set aside even a chunk of that Saturday to come be with us you will be blessed for it so consider that uh, now let 's get back into what i 'm actually here for today we're, we're hitting pause on acts for a couple weeks coming out of Easter and we 're going to take a few weeks to talk about something I am incredibly passionate about we do this a couple times a year where we pause from our series whatever book we 're going through and just kind of talk about um, some some topics some issues that we feel like are just appropriate to our church and so we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about holiness, and I'm I'm I, I'm I'm serious when I say this. This this topic is beyond vital for our church in the present day. It's beyond vital for Red Tree Church right now. Holiness, I feel like, is the sort of it's the sort of word that's it's just churchy enough that we can pretty much safely ignore it. You know what I mean? Like like we know it's important. We know we sing it. We know we say it. We know it's in the Bible a lot. But it's just a churchy enough word that we don't really use in other contexts that we can pretty much just ignore what it means and what its implications are on our life. What we'll find, I think, as we think about this, discuss it, is that holiness is such a deep part of the biblical narrative and such a deep expectation for Christian living that we ignore it at our own danger. If there is anything that defines the present day, it certainly isn't holiness, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going we're to spend three weeks on this. Today we're going to talk about the holiness of God. This is the primary way that the Scripture reveals God descriptively. Now that's an intense thing to say. I don't know if you caught that, but the, the primary way that the scripture reveals the person of God, that the scripture describes God, is through this term holiness. We do well to remember and honor the holiness of God. There is a chasm between the holiness of God and the profanity of sinful man, and we must acknowledge this gap. Next week we're going to talk about the holiness of Jesus, the amazing ability of God to transmit his holiness over the top of our profanity, our sinfulness, our uncleanliness, whatever, whatever term we want to use, right? We'll find that the, the holiness of God is more powerfully transmissive than the sinfulness and unrighteousness of the curse, which is an amazing gospel declaration. And lastly, last week, we're going to talk about the holiness of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who lives within us, and what that means for our own pursuit of holy living, what the what the Bible calls sanctification, what many modern Christians call this idea of Christian living or Christian worldview. Sound good? Rock and roll. Turn with me over to Isaiah six. I should have started my timer already. That means I get to start it now and, and go till it's done now, right? Um, we're in Isaiah six. This is a relatively well known passage within the prophets, but I feel like that's cheating because we we just ignore the prophets and there's a lot of good stuff in there. We're in Isaiah 6, starting in the first verse of the sixth chapter of Isaiah. We read this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say this to my people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though, though a tenth of it may remain it shall be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when dispelled and the holy offspring is its stump. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Brother God, as we take a few minutes to discuss your word, to contemplate on the way you have revealed yourself, this term that for many of us is is foreign, it's familiar yet foreign, it's this churchy word that's comfortable, but it doesn't doesn't pierce into our our modern vernacular, the way we speak, the way we think, that we pray that you would give us clear eyes to behold you today, clear eyes to consider you today, that we would we would think and contemplate and look upon the holiness of you and that it would draw us to reverence, to fear, to repentance, to worship, and ultimately to joy and to hope. We love you, Jesus. We need you for this. We, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So, this text, right? Like it's, it's probably the most well-known. If you take out the ones, like the little ones we pull out for Christmas... This is probably one of the more well-known texts in Isaiah, probably one of the more well-known texts in the major prophets, which is kind of a shame. The major prophets, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they actually make up the largest unit in all of the scripture, the, the most words penned of any single literary section in scripture. And they are the one that we, for the most part, as Christians, spend the least amount of time in. Uh, which by the way is, is is understandable they're incredibly confusing right if you if you go and read the prophets, the majority of these massive books are these poems, these prophetic poems that have ancient meaning that's appropriate to the moment in a moment in israel's history, but they also point forward to what God is doing through Christ through the church, and ultimately it is final judgment and it's just it's just hard to wade through right it's confusing it's it's I feel like when we read the prophets, we're most often just kind of going, I know that means something beautiful I, I, or maybe scary or maybe both. You know what I mean? It's just it's easy to jump into these books and just be a little confused. Maybe even as we were reading that section of prophecy that the Lord gave to Isaiah, there was part of you going, what the heck are we talking about right now? It's understandable. But we, we ignore this section of scripture it, to, to our detriment. See, the major prophets, again, largest chunk of Scripture and also easily the most theologically influential chunk of Scripture in the first century during the ministry of Jesus, during the ministry of the apostles. This was the chunks of Scripture that synagogues and rabbis went back to most often, that, that the apostles and fathers of the faith that came before us would have spent most of their time studying wild to think about that, right? It's the part that many of us are least acquainted with, and yet Isaiah specifically is deeply impactful on Jesus's own ministry. He comes back to the themes and the sayings of Isaiah a lot. In fact, this actual text is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 13 as he gives the parables to describe his own ministry. Jesus identifies himself prophetically with the ministry of Isaiah, where, where he says, why do I speak in parables? Well, I speak in parables so that they may, may see but not see, and hear but not hear. Because if they did, if they really understood, well, then they would turn and they would repent, and that's not the right time for that. He, he, he draws up this, this text, which is a description of Isaiah's ministry, and kind of connects it to his own, right? So we would do well to get our thinking caps on and dive into the prophets a little more often. Because A, they're beautiful. B, they are super confusing. But they're really important. They're, they're, they're important. And, and, and we can engage in there's tons of great resources around this. But I'm, I'm getting it off on a sidetrack. What, what, what I'd like to do today is work back through this text. We're going to talk about the narrative here. This this text is a little easier to understand than a lot of the prophets, because it's mostly a story, right? It's mostly narrative with this little chunk of poetry on the end we're going to talk about the narrative aspects then the prophetic poetic aspects kind of see what this tells us specifically about the holiness of god and this will lead us to a larger discussion about the implications of god's holiness on us as simple humanity we'll end out our time with paul's teaching to the thessalonican church and a call for for god's people to be holy as he is holy and then we'll end out with a time of reflection and communion. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. So the reality of all this discussion is that God is supremely holy. And if we are to be with him, we must be holy as well. That is is the rub, and it's the the piece we're going to talk about over and over and over, over the next couple weeks, is that God is supremely holy. We as his special creation, are built for intimacy, built for connection, built for relationship with him. But if we are not holy as well, we can't. We can't be with him. God is right and good to require holiness of his people. We're, we're built for this. But but to be with God and not be holy, hear this, is to die. To be in the presence of God and not be holy is to be consumed, is to be destroyed. So, of course, it's good and it's right for God, who built us for relationship with him, intimacy with him, to require holiness of us, because otherwise there's no relationship or intimacy with him. I know that's intense, right? But the scriptural story shows us that the taking the holiness of God lightly is disastrous and dangerous. Praise be to God that he can impart his holiness to those in need of it. Amen? Amen. So what's the story here? At this point, I've said it enough times that you you may be asking, like, okay, cool, what the heck does this word actually mean? Like, like what, what is holiness? This is the Hebrew word that we see in our text here a couple times, kadash. And it literally means set apart or separate. There is this special otherness. To to say that God is holy is to say that he is set apart from us. Some of the language the Bible used for this is that he is totally clean, or he is totally sacred, or he is other, or he is above. But, But guys, we have to note something here as we think about this. The Bible, for the most part, with the exception of this word holy, uses similes and analogies to talk about God's holiness. And the reason it does is because there isn't good language to actually describe the holiness of God. Even this word holy falls incredibly short. To say that God is holy is not just to say that he's set apart or other. There are plenty of things in your life that are set apart from you, right? And in that regard, a neutron star is rather set apart from you, right? There's no reality where you interact or engage with that thing. Maybe you can look at a picture of it on NASA, right? But, but but that's it. To say that God is holy is much more than this. It's not just separation, but it's it's separation and it's it's description of or it's descriptive of who God actually is, right? See, in his separation, he's not he's not like the way we define God is well, he's not us. And we define it by what he is. What he is is supremely good. It's it's amazing. It's perfection. It's it's goodness and love incarnate, right? It's power, it's knowledge, there's, there's all these things that are that are wrapped up in who God is and, and how he shows himself perfectly. And that just kind of comes together in this word holy. Because if you look upon God and, you, and you're able to experience or see or hear or listen or smell or in any way engage in his perfection, in his glory, in his supreme everythingness, the only really word that comes to mind is holy. holy. That thing is set apart from me. That is unlike me. To be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of something so amazingly other. Not just other, amazingly other. Beautifully, perfectly, lovingly, power four kings in terms of territory, wealth, and honor that is brought to the southern kingdom. It's it's pretty wild. All of this continued until about the 41st year of Uzziah's 52-year reign. See, as he continued to just win over and over and over and gain more glory and more wealth and more success... He started to grow in pride as well. And his pride worked itself out as he started to think about his connection to God and the way that God had blessed his monarchy. And he gets to this point where he just goes, me and God are just good. I don't need the priesthood. I don't need all these separations. God's the one who blessed me. He's the one who set up this monarchy. Me and him got a thing going. And this culminates in him banishing and setting aside the priest, kicking them all out of the temple and wandering into the Holy of Holies himself to offer incense and worship before the Lord at the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Which if you've read the scriptural story, you're already like, that's probably not going to go super well for this cat. (laughs) So he wanders in there and he's offering incense just like, we're good, God, right? Well, the high priest gets together, essentially a gang of priests, and they bust the door down and go in and say, what the heck do you think you're doing? This is not good. You are not anointed. You are not clean. You cannot stand in this place. And he basically turns around and says, I think I can. God's not doing anything about it. And in that moment, God sends an earthquake that shakes the temple mound so intensely that part of the roof over the Holy of Holies cracks open and sunlight pours into the Holy of Holies, where it's not supposed to be, and shines directly on the face of Uzziah. And as soon as that sunlight hits him, his skin turns leprous. And he immediately becomes the embodiment of uncleanliness. And he's taken away And he has to live in a separate house on the the kind of king's courtyard area. And he's no longer able to do anything for the monarchy. He lives the rest of his life cloistered away in that house. And his son co reigns with him for 11 years until his death. Pretty intense, right? Pretty intense story in his pride Uzziah disregards the holiness of God and enters into his holy sanctuary and offers unauthorized worship and for this he spends the rest of his life as an unclean repress as the physical embodiment of uncleanliness or unholiness in the context of this king's life and reign the young prophet Isaiah receives his vision from the Lord that's pretty intense right In in this context, the king who what he's known for is not how much he blessed Judah, not all his military victories. What he's known for is that he was the one dumb enough to walk into the Holy of Holies, right? When that king dies, Isaiah finds himself in a vision standing in the Holy of Holies standing in the throne room of God. Now, it's important to note, right, when God gave the design for the tabernacle and by proxy the design for the temple... The Holy of Holies was, was kind of set apart as this earthly representation of the heavenly throne room where, where God dwells. So Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God, and it looks pretty much exactly like the temple. Now, people actually debate here whether or not he's like literally taken away and brought into the, into the throne room of God, whether he's has a vision where he sees the throne room of God, where, or whether he was literally just standing in the temple worshiping, and God did this kind of augmented reality thing and was like, Hey, let me show you what's actually happening in this room while you stand in here with the priest we don't know fully but it wouldn't matter because they all overlap and what happens in this scene is that regardless of how it's happening this young man isaiah finds himself standing before yahweh god almighty that's pretty intense and look how the scene is described yahweh is sitting high upon his throne His royal robes drape around the room, filling it up. There are burning coals on the altar before his throne. His voice shakes the room, and as he speaks, the room fills with smoke and mist. And God is surrounded by these special angels who are worshiping him as holy. There is so much here, right? So first let's know what we've already said which is that Isaiah is experiencing this room as essentially identical to the actual sanctuary, the actual temple, the Holy of Holies. Remember, within the Holy of Holies, the deepest room in the temple, we don't know anything about these creatures. The The only sources we have that speak really detailed into the spiritual creation are not biblical resources. The reality is the Bible makes it very clear that God has created spiritual creatures who are other than us, who don't exist in the physical world as we do, but it doesn't seem terribly interested in educating us about him. And so I would warn you guys, honestly, just against this. Anyone who's really confident about how the hierarchy works of angels and demons and spiritual creatures is probably getting that from somewhere outside the Bible. Now, normally I would say it's not even a big deal, except that that is at the root of a lot of really dangerous heresy that have bogged and plagued the church for thousands of years. Heresies that question the Trinity and question the deity of Christ come from people being overly confident in saying they understand things about the seraphim and the cherubim and the angels and those things that the Bible just simply doesn't tell us. So, I say that to say, they're really cool. They're really cool, and they're obviously important to God. He uses his spiritual creatures often in the gospel narrative in really important ways. I, I would encourage you to wonder at them and, and think about how cool they are, but just be, be careful to make more of them than the Bible allows you to. Does that makes sense? Rock away. So, we get this description of these seraphim, and I actually think this is important for understanding our text. I already said this, but you notice... They cover their faces and their feet with four of their six wings. This is an image that would have really struck home for Isaiah. The face and the feet are places where uncleanliness or unholiness is shown to the world. So by covering the face and the feet away from Yahweh, these creatures are respecting and honoring His holiness in comparison to their existence. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. That is wild. That is wild. These creatures are so reverent for the holiness of God that they are covering their faces and their feet, even though they apparently are non-fallen, non-sinful creatures. I mean, they're standing in the presence of God, so it would be necessary for them to be sinless to do so, and yet they still cover themselves. This speaks to the immensity of God's holiness. That even in the face of sinless perfection, he is still more holy and more perfect and more set apart than even that. Is it any wonder that Isaiah responds the way he does? He is standing face to face with the holy God of the universe. His response is very normative. He does this. Oh, no. He freaks out. I should not be here. This is not a place for me. Woe is me. I will be no more. See, he understands that to to be in the presence of God, that that God is so holy, so set apart, that even his his perfect spirit beings must regard his holiness. Here is Isaiah uncovered in the midst of his sin and his uncleanliness, in the presence of all this holiness and all this righteousness. Beloved, he, he knows what this means. This means death. This means death. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. God's holiness cannot be violated when it is things and people that attempt to ignore his set-apart special otherness are destroyed and consumed. And, And hear me, guys. This is not God being mean or vindictive. This is simply a matter of mismatched things. If you were to walk home today and open up your front door and standing two feet inside your front door was a nuclear fission reaction, you would cease to exist, right? That thing is too other from you. It's not good or bad or mean. It's just so separate from you that you can't be in its presence. If we were to walk downstairs and there was a two foot wide black hole that had burst in the center of the fellowship hall. You would cease to be. You could not be in its presence. It is too other from you. A human body, a human being cannot exist in the presence of something like that. Now magnify that by an infinite magnitude. And we're talking about the holy and righteous creator God. Isaiah freaks out. He knows he cannot be in the presence of a holy God. He knows this means death. Remember, this is the your King Uzziah died, the, the king who thought he could stand in the holy holies and <laughs> offer his own incense, the king who was struck leprous for violating the holiness of God. Uzziah is the, the physical analogy of uncleanliness in the face of holiness. You know, in, in Hebrews 12, the author warns the church to strive for holiness, because no one can see God or approach God without being holy. God is so holy that you must be holy to approach him, or his holiness will simply consume you. Again, not out of anger, not as a punishment. not as a, It's just the reality of who he is and who you are. If we are to approach him, we must be set apart from the world like he is. In 1 Samuel 16, David goes to move the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle to the city of Jerusalem to honor God. And as it's moving along, they have it sitting on this cart. And the cart hits a rut in the road and tips. And the Ark of the Covenant starts to fall out of the cart and fall on its side. And one of David's guards, a man named Uzzah, apparently U's and Z's and your name is not a good connection. But, but, but Uzzah reaches out and catches the Ark so it doesn't fall off the cart. And he immediately drops dead. Again, not because God is mad at him. Not because God is punishing him, but because the holiness of God dwelt within the ark and God warned his people not to disregard that holiness or it would consume them. When, when, when God brought his presence down on Mount Sinai, and, 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 and began to give the law to his people. He warned and said, do not allow them to come up the mountain or my holiness will consume them. Even if an animal wanders up the side of the mountain, it will be consumed by my holiness. When when the presence of God came down from heaven and dwelt within the Holy of Holies for the first time, when the tabernacle was, was, was consecrated and God chose to dwell amongst his people, and there was all this holiness and all the same thing, shaking and smoke and loudness and fire and all these things, and then all of a sudden two of the priests go, and instead of worshiping God the way he told them to, they walk up to the Ark of the Covenant and they offer incense in the style of the Egyptians. And they offer pagan worship to the holy God and the holy fire of God reaches out and consumes them and burns them to ashes. Again, not as a punishment, not out of vindictiveness, but because the holiness of God cannot be disregarded by sin. It cannot be in the presence of sin. It cannot be in the presence of unholiness. God is, the, is holy in an absolute sense. And we, beloved of Jesus, are not. We're not. We know this. We know that we are sinful, unclean creatures. Just as Isaiah, we are people of unclean lips who dwell within a land and amongst the people of unclean lips. We cannot be in his presence. It is simply too much. It will consume us. Just like you couldn't stand in front of a black hole. It simply can't happens. Sin and unholiness cannot be in the presence of God, which is why he is to be feared. It's why when people see God face to face, they freak out. They drop on their face in terror because to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of complete and perfect holiness. Isaiah freaks out because he's ready to drop dead. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. And this leaves humanity, this leaves us in an impossible position, in a terrible position. Sin cannot be in the presence of God, and yet we, humanity, was made for intimacy and relationship with God. But we're sinful rather than holy. And because of that, we cannot see Him. We cannot approach Him. We can't be around his holiness. What are we to do? It creates this impossible scenario. So what does God do? How does he solve Isaiah's impossible situation? I love this. He forgives Isaiah's sin. He makes a way for him to be holy and stand in his presence. From the very Holy fire of God, one of these burning ones, brings forth one of these coals, the the fires of God's holiness that burn up and consume the sacrifice and brings it to sinful, unclean Isaiah and touches him. And in that moment, see this, beloved, the holy fire of God does not consume him, does not burn him up, rather purifies him. It burns up the sin within him. Look, look what! Look what God actually says to him, or, or the Seraphim says to him: "Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for." Whew. Beloved, the holiness of God is transmissive. It can it can supersede the sinfulness of humanity. God's holiness transmits and it doesn't just transmit it it powerfully transmits it's it's more powerful than sin and unrighteousness he is so holy that his holiness overrides and washes away the sin of isaiah and he is atoned for and made holy enough to stand before god and receive his mission what a hopeful scene what a beautiful scene And look, by the way, at what Isaiah's mission actually is. He's going to preach and be ignored so that God can judge. That's what what God tells him. Go out and preach to my people. Tell them of my holiness. Tell them to repent. And they're all going to ignore you. And they're all going to follow in the footsteps of King Uzziah. And they're all going to ignore my holiness. And they're going to be destroyed because of it. And even even when 90% of them, even when 9 out of 10, even when the cities are gone and the houses are burned and the things are abandoned, they still will not turn. And it will be even more. More judgment, more destruction. And then look how God ends out this calling. But the holy offspring will be a stump. I love this. When he gives his mission to Isaiah, he says, look, my judgment is going to move in power. It's going to be intense. And those who violate my holiness, they will receive judgment. But the destruction won't be complete. At the end of it, there will be something holy left over. Something that can be with me something that, that, that can survive the judgment, something that can stand in my presence. The holy, righteous judgment of God on the other end of it will leave a holy offspring. Whew. I love that. God may judge, and God, may de- God definitely takes holiness seriously, but God can preserve a holy remnant. Just like God made Isaiah holy, God can make his people holy. Beloved, if we approach him in the the humility, the repentance, the dependence of, of men like Isaiah, we can be made holy as well. Uzziah approached God in pride and disregarded the holiness of God and met judgment. Isaiah approached God in humble dependence, and his reward was holiness. In his letter to the Thessalonican church, Paul says this, of the holiness that the church needs to understand. It says this, First then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how to please God, just as you are now doing, that you do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, That each one of you should know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one will transgress and wrong his brother in the matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. for, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this teaching disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Beloved, holiness is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to Him. The entirety of the gospel is wrapped up in holiness. You cannot see God or experience Him or know Him with holiness. Out holiness. You cannot approach your Creator and the Lover of your soul without holiness. You cannot have it and also pursue sin. You just can't. We need God to give us His holiness. We can't do this on our own. We can't be the broken, sinful people we are that pursue our own benefits and our own pleasures and also stand in the presence of God. It just doesn't Work, but praise be to God that He can give away holiness. And He does. He delights to make us holy. So let me land with this. Because God takes holiness seriously, so we must take holiness seriously. We must. In the coming weeks, we'll flesh out how Jesus and His Spirit make this possible for us. But but today, as we started, it's, it's enough to acknowledge this: our God, who we worship, who we call upon, who we sing to, is holy. He is completely and totally holy. He is. He is. And he, words fall short. That's why we use that one. He's amazing, and that is a serious thing he takes his holiness and our holiness very seriously we have to have it. we're in an impossible situation full of sin as unholy as we can possibly be and yet desperately needing holiness to approach our creator and the lover of our soul and i'll end here we've said this several times already but i think it's just a good place to speak and then pray our God is willing to make us holy if we ask. Whew. What a beautiful truth! Pray with me, Church. <clears throat> Father, we we so desperately need you. God, you are you are so good, and you're so worthy of worship, and you are so holy, and you are so set apart, and you are so awesome. And God, we confess to you that we we disregard that continually. We cheapen. We've fallen into these these comfortable spaces of of, of considering you as our our friend and our buddy. And all these things are beautiful and true and you are so intimately connected to us. But God, may may we never lose sight of your supreme holiness. It is unfathomable that you deign to interact with us to love us, to connect with us, to make us so that we can be in your presence. God, we so desperately need you. We are helpless without you. So God, give us eyes to remember and see your holiness. And give us the humility and the dependence of our brother Isaiah to come to you asking for it. We need you, God. We love you, God. We want to worship you as you truly are, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Love it. We're going to sing a song. I would encourage you guys to take these few minutes as we sing and we take communion and we kind of end out. I would encourage you to take a few minutes, and I mean this, legitimately just reflect on who our God is. And how he has chosen to reveal himself—the God who whose very voice shakes the foundations, who spills forth holy smoke that fills the room, who who is present and in charge, who is holy and other and sacred and set apart. We sing as we think, reflect on how good he is, and see what his spirit says to you. Love you guys.